We come this Lord's Day to speak further on the subject of the body of Christ and that it is the tabernacle or the flesh clothing God, a very God, God with us in the flesh. Last week we spoke of the subject, a tent, not a house, and how men have long erected great temples and cathedrals to their gods to propitiate them, to sacrifice to them, to lay claim to them as their gods, to make them to dwell with them. The buildings are often gilded with gold and precious stones and are things of great beauty, but sooner or later, the buildings become idols, the things worshipped in the place of their gods. Temples are also used to box God in and thereby exclude Him, in some sense, from everyday life. We think we are safe from God so long as we are not in His presence in His temple. So we dress up in nice clothes when we go to church. For many people, they can't wait to escape from the church. They muse or they are deluded into thinking that God won't be watching them in their ordinary everyday life. King David wished to build God a house, but by the time Jesus came along, the temple had been made an idol and was corrupted with money and commerce and thievery. The Jews were so fixated on the glories of their temple that they couldn't see the glories of Christ. Well, said Isaiah, when we shall see Him, there is no beauty that we should desire Him. When they demanded a sign of Jesus, He replied, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. They confused their temple in which they falsely believed that God dwelt with the body of the Lord Jesus wherein dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. They would have guarded their temple from any attack, but they sought to destroy Christ. They tried to bring charges against Jesus at His trial that He had threatened to destroy their precious temple. They confused the true temple of God which is not their building, but rather is the Savior Himself. He's the promised Messiah. He is God incarnate in human flesh. Yet they denied Him, insulted Him, degraded Him, and put Him to death on the cross. It seems that for Israel, nothing about Jesus could compare to their great temple that they thought was God's house. But Scripture tells us differently. It is not the building or the temple where God dwells with us. It is in His dear Son, incarnate in His humanity. The angel told Jesus' adopted earthly father, Joseph, that Jesus was conceived in Mary by the Holy Ghost and that He would save His people from their sin. All this was done to fulfill the prophet who foretold how a virgin will conceive and her son will be called God with us. Hebrews is constantly exalting Jesus in His body above all that is the Jewish temple. Christ is the very brightness of God's glory and the express image of the Godhead. He has by Himself purged our sins. In chapter 2, Hebrews describes the lowliness of Jesus in His incarnation, how He was given a human body so that He could suffer death to save us. Indeed, that very body of Christ is shown to be our salvation. 
Jesus did not take on the nature of angels, but rather the nature of human beings. No doubt, had He appeared as an angel, the people would have respected Him in all that splendor. And yet in Christ's very body was the image of God to us and the presence of God with us. Perhaps this confusion by the Jewish people between the temple building and the person of Messiah and His great sacrificial work in His body and not in the temple began innocently enough in David's mind when he decided he ought to build a house for God to dwell in. But God forbade David, reminding him that, quote, I have never dwelt in any house since the time I brought Israel out of Egypt, even to this day. I never spake a word with any of the tribes of Israel, saying, Why build ye not me a house of cedar? Unquote. Instead, God promised to build David a house, not a palace, not a building, but rather a dynasty and reign as well as to give a land to Israel in which to dwell. To be sure, God promised that David's son Solomon would build him, quote, a house for his name, but he didn't say anything about dwelling in it. Buried in these promises to David was the promise of the Messiah that was yet to come, the true dwelling place of God with His people, the incarnation of God the Son, our Lord Jesus. It was two little phrases in Second Samuel 7 that brought this preacher's heart to tears of joy. God told Nathan to tell David a precious truth about how God dwells with His people, not in buildings. God said, I have not dwelt in a house, but I have walked in a tent and in a tabernacle in all the places wherein I've walked with the children of Israel. God had always walked with His people in a tent. Thus was the image of Christ that was to come revealed by God to David. The tabernacle is a very apt image of the body of Christ. God clothed upon, as it were, by the animal skins and fabrics and poles and wooden planks and sockets. It points to the day when God would clothe His Son in the flesh and bones of mankind and walk amongst us as God with us. Look back to how God described His communion with His people via the tent of congregation, the tabernacle. God said, Thou shalt make a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. God described all the animal skins and wooden structure of that tent and the holy place and the Ark of the Covenant with its blood-stained mercy seat where the sacrificial blood was sprinkled to make an atonement for the people's sin. It was in that tent above the mercy seat that God had then promised, There I will meet with thee and I will commune with thee. In olden times, God walked with His people clothed with the tent and met with them where propitiation was made for His people. So it is that we do not meet with Christ in a cathedral or a grand temple or an imposing church building. Communing with God is never about temples and buildings and golden edifices, but about meeting with Jesus at the mercy seat, His very body and blood given for our redemption. We meet with Christ at His table. He is designated not gold or silver boxes, called by some tabernacles, but rather His body and blood signified 
by the humble, commonplace symbols of bread and wine. Not in the grand cathedral or temple, but rather God dwells with His people in the flesh and blood of Jesus. He's present with us in our hearts and by these symbols which point to our God with us. Christ's body is the true tabernacle of God wherein He walks with His people. Oh, let us perceive the body of Christ as the true house of God. And one day we shall see Him again bodily with our own eyes. So we come to speak briefly about the Lord's Supper where Christ ordained these symbols of His body and blood, His body and blood in which God walks with His people and communes with us at the mercy seat. Now, in case you haven't noticed, there are three ways in which the body and blood of Christ or the person of Christ in His humanity walks with His people. First, there is the physical body of the Savior. It sits in glory now, and yet it is with us spiritually. It's with us in our hearts. We understand that He is there representing us, you see. Though His body walks not with us at present, yet it did in the past and it will in the future. And now it is about the business of interceding for us at the throne of God. And then the second way is through the symbols of the bread and the wine at the Lord's table, they represent the body and blood of Christ, whereby God walks with His people as if in a tent. Think of it that Christ could have designated these commonplace symbols to remind us that Christ is the fullness of the Godhead bodily, that Christ in His humanity represents to us, presents to us, God of very God. And He has ordained these symbols to stand in the place or to remind us to commemorate to us that tangible way in which God is with us. He's with us in the sacrifice of Christ, in the body and blood of Christ. Every time we partake of this bread and this wine, we ought to recollect that it points to the flesh and blood sacrifice offering of Jesus as God's Lamb and that He is the incarnation of the God whom we serve. And then thirdly, of course, the Scriptures teach that the Lord's people are members of His body, the church. Now, it's appropriate that we who have trusted in Jesus are indwelt with the Holy Spirit, that God has set up housekeeping, if you will, in our very bodies. And this is a sober and great admonition to us not to live in sin, not to walk in sin, but to realize that in that metaphorical sense we are the temple of God wherein the Spirit dwells. In discussing that matter, we remember that we are joined with Christ. We are in Christ, the Scriptures tell us, through faith. That we are in Christ and we follow 
Christ as the head of the body, don't we? If we, as the church, are the body of Christ in this world, spiritually speaking, then Christ is the head who controls the body. The Holy Ghost abides in us, as I've mentioned already. There is no division between the believers, just like there's no division between the arms and the fingers and the legs and so forth in a regular body. Somebody has said that when we're in the body of Christ in the church, not speaking of a building or of a physical thing, but the mystical body of Christ, why then we cannot be lost because he would have to amputate part of his body. But then we also share in the inheritance with Christ, as Paul outlines in Romans chapter 8. And we partake of Christ's death and of His resurrection. Many verses could be adduced towards these ends, but consider just one passage, Colossians 2 at verse 9, where the Word says, For in Him, that is Christ, dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and ye are complete in Him, who is the head of all principality and power, in whom also ye are circumcised with a circumcision made without hands and putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with Him in baptism, in which also ye are risen with Him through the faith of the operation of God who hath raised Him from the dead. And you being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath He made alive together with Christ, having forgiven you all transgressions, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to His cross, and having spoiled principalities and powers, He made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. You see how Christ being offered up in our place is important to understanding the fact that we died with Him, we rose with Him, we are knit together with Christ by the Holy Spirit through faith and together amongst the believers as His body, the church. In this other way is seen how God walks with His people, Christ's physical body, the temple of God, in the symbols representing that very body and blood that we partake of, and in His people, His true church, in each of His saints, God dwells and we are joined to Christ as part of His spiritual body. So, the fulfillment of God walking amongst His people as if in a tent, you see, is multifaceted and is most glorious and most comprehensive. And it intimately involves not only the flesh and blood of Jesus, but also involves the symbols that He left for us to remember them by, and involves His very people, ourselves. It is a glorious thing. It shows the fullness of that promise that when Christ came, it would be God with us. And this Lord's table is central to the continued walking of God in Jesus Christ with us. The bread and wine picturing 
the link between our lives and Christ as our Savior. Recall the Lord Jesus was celebrating that last Passover with His disciples. And there somewhere near the end, the night He was betrayed, betrayed up for death as God had purposed to save us by. We read those simple words of Christ's institution of this feast. Matthew 26 at verse 26 said, As they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed it and break it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And He took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink ye all of it, for this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Now notice in this simple celebration or remembrance, there is no elaborate procedure of conversion of the bread and the wine to the body and blood of Christ. No, Christ merely designates these as the symbols of the things they represent. But there is, of course, a giving of blessing, a placing of blessing, a giving of thanks, it says in other texts, by Christ for these symbols. You notice that Jesus knew what He was giving thanks for. Not just bread, not just wine, but rather the things they represented. He was giving thanks that His body would be broken and torn and mutilated and treated with contempt by the wicked and put to death. That's what the bread symbolizes. That's what Christ was giving thanks for. The offering He was about to make, that He was about to present unto our God of His very body on Calvary's tree, He was giving thanks for that. The poor disciples were so confused and ignorant, they didn't understand what Christ's giving of thanks for the bread signified or what it was about to represent. But Jesus knew. He always knew. Every time He went to the temple and saw a lamb being slain, He always knew that one day He would be the real lamb, the last lamb, the lamb that could take away sin. Christ was freighted, if you will, all His life with the full knowledge of what He was to accomplish on the cross. And even as He gave thanks for the bread, He understood even if His disciples didn't understand and couldn't understand what it was He was really giving thanks for. May I say, ought we not to join Him in giving thanks for what the bread and the wine actually signify? It is our very life. It is our very hope, our very salvation. What His body was to be put through, what His blood was to be put through. And so it is It is meet, is it not, that we should give thanks for these things with an understanding. What they picture, what they symbolize, what Christ accomplished in the thing that He did. And He gives thanks for them. His blood shed in death, He gives thanks for that also. No mere giving thanks for food or nourishment, 
but rather thanksgiving for His sacrifice as God's Lamb. What a gentle and tender display of the love of Christ for His poor lost people that He should give thanks that He would be slain to save His people from their sin. And then notice that the blood of the New Testament, it says, shed for many for the remission of sin, or we would say the blood of the New Covenant, pointing back to that promise that God made to Jeremiah that in a New Covenant, which would be unilateral by God Himself, that His people would keep His law because it would be written on their hearts. His people wouldn't know the Lord because that was a promise God made under the New Covenant. Not the soul that keeps the law will live by it, but rather it would be a unilateral promise by God to His people that He would change their hearts. In another place it says, give them hearts of flesh and take away their stony hearts that He would change their hearts to know Him, to truly know Him. And of course, how can it be otherwise if He should dwell in His people by His Spirit? That is the means by which He knits us together unto Himself through Christ. The consequence of all of it was that He would not remember our sins against us anymore. He would not remember our sins against us anymore. And no doubt the Old Testament saints may have puzzled over that. Well, how is He going to be just? Didn't He promise that the soul that sins, it shall die? The wages of sin is death. The curse of the law dwells upon everyone who doesn't keep every single solitary part of it. How can God do that and yet be just? How can He just remember against us our sins no more? Well, Jesus tells us by the substitution of Christ for sinners, by the blood that He shed to execute that new covenant, to give it its power and authority and justice and might. He executed that new covenant in His own body on the cross. And His blood was shed to execute that covenant. And by means of that bloodshedding in the place of His people, Paul says, God might be just and the justifier of those who trust in Jesus the promises of the law's judgment are fulfilled and satisfied in the body of Christ in our place and for our crimes laid upon Him. And so this cup, you see, pictures the satisfaction of justice by the sacrifice of Jesus so that God might be just and the justifier of sinners. And therefore, Christ executes by His dying for us by His blood shedding for us. As a lamb slain for sinners, He executes that promise of the new covenant. Gives it all its life and power. Makes God just as He fulfills the promises that He made in the new covenant. The body and blood of Jesus is not only the tabernacle of God walking amongst us, but it is God with us but it is also the sacred offering God delivered up in order to redeem us. So you see, knit together in Christ is the fact that He is the fleshly tabernacle of God with us. And at the same time, He is the final and complete offering for sin 
for everyone who believes in Him. No wonder Isaac Watts said, not all the blood of beasts on Jewish altars slain could give the guilty conscience peace or wash away its stain, but Christ the heavenly Lamb took all our sin away, a sacrifice of nobler name and richer blood than they. So here we have pictured the One who is God with us in the flesh, but also God's Lamb to take away our sin. And you know, for all eternity, He is the Lamb that was slain for us. They see Him in Revelation 5 in glory, standing at the throne of God, a Lamb as if it had been slain, but standing. The old Puritans made a big deal out of the fact that the Lamb was standing. He was dead once, but He's alive again forevermore. And they could tell that a lamb had been slain as an offering for their sin. And this motivated their great praise of glory, didn't it? For Thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by Thy blood out of every nation and kindred and tongue and people. So You're worthy, Lord Jesus, lamb that was slain to receive all glory and honor and praise So in glory, you see, God with us will still be there with us. He'll still be clothed in His flesh. And He will be walking with us. And we will commune with Him. We will see His face with our own eyes. And yet, He will also have taken on that great designation as being the Lamb that was slain for us, alive forevermore. We will see... God with us, clothed in the flesh of the Lord Jesus. And we will see God's Lamb that was slain, walking with us, alive forevermore. We love to sing the words of that special hymn, Behold the glories of the Lamb amidst the Father's throne. Prepare new honors for His name and songs before unknown. Ye elders worship at His feet, His saints adore around with vials full of odors sweet and harps of sweetest sound. To Thee, O Lamb, to Thee once slain, be endless blessings paid, salvation, glory, joy remain forever upon Thine head. And as we gather around the Lord's table, we can say that salvation, glory, and joy remain upon us as well forever because of our Lamb who was slain for us. Well, let's give thanks for the Lord's table and for the symbols that He left us to remind us of God with us and God's Lamb joined together in the body of the Lord Jesus and pictured by these common ordinary symbols of the bread and the wine dedicated to represent these glorious truths. Let's give thanks first for the bread that pictures the body of Christ. Lord, we give You praise for the offering of Christ in our place, that You clothed Him with a body so that He might have a body in which our sins could be judged, and that He left us this bread to symbolize in ordinary ways that extraordinary body that He was clothed with that He delivered up 
on the cross for our offenses and upon whose body and whose body bore our sins on the tree. And we thank you that we can partake of this bread as symbolizing our reliance upon the body of Christ offered for us to make atonement for us, to save us, help us to understand what the symbol means and to rejoice in what it signifies. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The Scriptures say that on the night our Lord was betrayed, He took the bread and He blessed it and He broke it. And He said, Take and eat. This is My body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. I might ask my Father if He would give thanks for the cup that pictures the blood of the Lord Jesus shed to make atonement for us. And the Scriptures tell us that after they had supped, He took the cup and He blessed it. And He said, Drink ye all of it. This cup is the New Testament in My blood for the remission of sin. Do it as often as ye do it in remembrance of Me. And the Scriptures tell us that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we do preach the Lord's death until He comes. Let's stand and sing number 79 in the black book. Jesus, Thy head, once crowned with thorns, is crowned with glory now. Heaven's royal diadem adorns the mighty victor's brow. Number 79.